Hey, it's Greg Brown. Grab your logbook, because it's time for another cockpit adventure from the flying carpet. I'm an aviation author, adventure columnist, photographer, former National Flight Instructor of the Year, and Barnes & Noble Arizona Author of the Month. The Flying Carpet is a four-place single-engine light airplane. In it, my wife Jean and I have long traveled the North American continent, searching behind clouds for the real America, and experiencing aerial adventures like today's all along the way. Learn more at my website, gregbrownflyingcarpet.com, where you can also see photos from most episodes. And I'd appreciate your feedback in my Flying Carpet Podcast Facebook group. This episode's a bit different than usual. In it, I address tips and tricks for treating your family and friends to their critical first airplane ride to ensure that they enjoy themselves and want to fly with you again. Also, heads up that this is a live recording of a talk given several years ago, meaning audio quality is somewhat variable. But if you'll stick with me, I promise some great tips along with some fun stories pilots at every experience level will appreciate. Okay, everyone, hop aboard my flying carpet, snug up your seatbelts, and prepare for takeoff on today's adventure, flight number 19. Share your gift of flight. Clear prop. I'm Greg Brown, and as you hopefully know, this talk is about sharing the joy of flight. And there are a couple of reasons why we're here today and why I give this little spiel, uh, both of which I think are important reasons. Uh, one of them has to do with who flies the kinds of airplanes we fly. Is there anyone in here who's not involved with general aviation, with light airplanes, either for pleasure or for business? Because if you look at who today's flight instructors are, for example, those are generally young people, not exclusively, but the young people who populate most of the flight schools are primarily aspiring airline pilots, right? They don't think flying a 172 is cool. They don't think flying an Archer is cool. So one of the problems that, that uh, I've personally become very concerned about is who is it that's bringing people into general aviation, which we all know is a wonderfully rewarding type of flying. But as light airplane pilots, we have the freedom to go where we want. The reason I mention this is that I'm not sure that very many young people or people outside of flying have any idea why this is such great stuff. And if we don't make the effort to expose our friends and neighbors and relatives to this, who's going to do it? So I think there's never been a more important time for us to bring people flying and show them what it's all about, to invite them along on our adventures. If you remember who gave you your first airplane ride, would you raise your hand? Okay, shout out the name. Who was it? 
the point I want to make here is that when you give someone an airplane ride, for you, it may be a pleasant event. But for that individual, if it's their first airplane ride or the first time maybe handling the controls, they will remember that for the rest of their lives. If you think about it, how many other things can we do in life that will be remembered forever? Uh, an ability to give someone a gift that they will never forget for a lifetime. The day you can take someone else flying, you've got in your pocket that little piece of paper that says you can give this special gift that no one else can give. And personally, as I've been flying longer and longer, I found that that's become a bigger and bigger deal with me. I still love to fly the plane, of course, but uh, I, I'm sure you would agree. Taking someone for their first ride when they're enthused about it is quite a thrill. Sometimes, unfortunately, we get in a situation where maybe we're enthused about flying, but others in our family or among our friends are not. And that can be a very difficult situation, and I cannot tell you that I have the ultimate answer that will make someone fly who doesn't want to. Sometimes they're just not going to do it. But I am going to share some uh, things that I found useful in getting people to go flying to introduce them, get them involved with flying. So that's the other purpose today. If you've got a, a reluctant spouse or a reluctant family member or friend that you, you've been trying to figure out, how do I tackle this thing? We're going to talk about that a little bit, too. Let's start off here with first flight stuff again. Let's say you've got a friend or a spouse that you wanted to take on a very special flight to introduce them to flying. Now, I live in the Phoenix area. Anybody else here from Phoenix? Scottsdale? Well, there's a place. Pardon? Prescott. Well, then you'll know about this place. Where would you take somebody? Sedona. How many have landed at Sedona? Okay. Do you remember? It was a pretty cool place, right? Because it's, uh, it's in the middle of the Red Rock country. You think of when you think of Arizona. And the uh, airport is on a butte, a 400-foot-tall butte overlooking town. So you come in around these fantastical rock formations and land on what feels like an aircraft carrier, but it's it's a 5,000-foot-long aircraft carrier. A couple of years ago, I was looking in my logbook, for what reason I don't even remember, and I suddenly realized that people I had taken to Sedona over the years, of which there were maybe a dozen, almost everyone had gone on to become a pilot. It wasn't my design that they do that. But it's just, it's a really spectacular place to go. You can never see that place in the same way except by airplane. I mean, anywhere you go in the country, there are these special places. You might be able to get there by car, but the experience is not the same. And I think that when we're giving someone this first flight, it's worth it to make sure that the weather's just right, of course, and that the situation's just right, but that we have a destination that they couldn't just drive to, or it wouldn't be magical if they drove there. And so, you know, this sort of goes without saying, but it's, it's important, I think, that we keep in mind that this first flight is going to set the tone for what they're going to do in the future. Now, suppose they've been looking forward to this first flight for weeks, and the weather's kind of marginal on that day. What should happen? You, you don't dare go, because I like to compare this airplane stuff with motorcycles. If you love riding on the back of a motorcycle, raise your hand. 
Okay. You two know the drivers very well, right? If you think about it, it's hard for us who are already pilots to be back in that situation. But riding in the right seat of an airplane is a lot like riding on the back of a motorcycle. I mean, there's a sense of total lack of control. And, of course, we all know they're actually much safer. I mean, one thing we can say for sure is airplanes are safer than motorcycles. You could debate cars. But uh, I think it's really important to keep that in mind. If they have a bad experience the first time, they will probably never, ever go again. And so we don't want to expose ourselves to that risk. Far better to tell your friends, we're going to wait for the perfect day, and then we're going to go flying. And if today's not the perfect day, then let's drive somewhere for dinner. But we're not going to go flying today because it's not the perfect day. Now, those of you who are still in the process of learning to fly or about to, one of the main things you want to avoid in alarming your family members is you don't want to tell war stories at home. And Right? And we've all seen this. I know a fellow, a, a nice couple. Jeff loves to fly. Susan is petrified of flying, though they're, they're obviously very close because she does go. But every story Jeff tells is, you know, I was in, inbound for landing and the crosswind tore the controls from my hands. <laughs> you know, he actually used that phrase. Then there was the time he accidentally landed at an Air Force base. And rather than wait and get in trouble, he just turned around and took off again. <laughs> so, so he tells these stories, you know. His wife isn't always along, but she's the beneficiary of these stories. Obviously, that's not a great way to involve her in the, in the fun of flying. Now, in terms of destinations, I'm kind of going back and forth here a little bit. Um, let me back up a step on destinations. Let's say we're talking about someone who, who is hesitant to fly or you doubt is going to have a passion for the act of flying. One of the most important things for them, if you have a, a spouse or a friend that you want to take flying and you're not sure how they'll, if they'll care, is, is to pick a destination that is a place they want to go for their own purposes and then emphasize that destination rather than the flying. I mean, we're all so excited. I just got my private license. I'm going to show her what stalls are. I'm going to show her what steep turns are. <laughs> Instead, the trick is to pick a place that they would like to go. You have to, if, if, you're, uh, if your husband's a fisherman, fly somewhere where he can go fishing. You know, if your wife uh, loves art museums, fly somewhere to visit a special exhibit she really wants to see. But my experience over many years of flying, and those of you who've been at this a while, I suspect will agree, if you're taking someone to a place they really want to go, they don't have to love the flight to appreciate that mode of travel. And they generally remember it very fondly afterwards, because even though it might have hurt a little bit, they got to go to a special place, uh, do a thing they wanted to do. And uh, in my own family, this is true, my wife is not a person. If I, if I say to my wife, how would you like to fly to Sedona for lunch today? No, thanks. She's playing tennis. <laughs> but if we're going to go somewhere exciting, how would you like to fly to Goulding's trading post, you know, up at Monument Valley for the weekend? Wow, she's all set to go. How would you like to fly to San Diego and we'll go boating? She's all set to go.
those of you who've been flying a while, what have you learned about the reaction to your passengers when you say, we're not going? They are always disappointed when you decide not to go. We make a weather decision. That's, but later, they will brag about it, usually. People really respect you. Until they see you say no, they're not sure if you're safe. But the moment you say, no, we're not going today, I don't like it, or we're not returning, we're going to get a hotel room, the, the thing you're most concerned about upsetting your passengers with is actually the thing that generates the most respect from them. And uh, one sign you'll see a lot of times with a first-time passenger, when they're talking about the pilot who took them flying, they'll describe the pre-flight in great detail. You know, boy, is Jane thorough. I mean, before we went, she must have spent a half hour crawling all over that airplane. Of course, the whole time Jane was thinking, my gosh, I'm probably scaring the passengers to death here while I'm checking the oil. And But the, the thing is that people do respect you for it. And that's a good thing to know, because if you play up on that care, you build their confidence. In my experience, sharing with them the pre-flight and showing what you're doing adds confidence rather than disturbing them. There, there are certain people I'm not sure I'll say, would you like to know what I'm doing here? You know, if I'm not sure how they feel. Most of the times they say yes. If they say no, then I'll just go about my pre-flight. But, uh, you know, the comparison the passenger's making is, this is my husband who always forgets to take out the garbage. A real airline pilot, you know, is a different breed. I mean, my husband is not made of the same stuff because he forgot to take out the garbage last night. Of course, the fact is that the airline pilot forgot too, but, you know, he's got the uniform, so he's okay. The reason I mention this is, as we go on, you know, we've done our pre-flight, which is what an airline pilot does, right? And if we go to the next step now, we get into the plane, what is the one time you really hear the professional flight crew talking to you? Safety, the briefing. So this briefing is a marvelous opportunity to show your passengers that everything is cool. So explain cockpit lights and horns. We'll talk about that more in a second here. If you have six sacks in the plane and you think they might possibly ever need to be used, my general philosophy is I tell them. I say, look, this is going to be a great ride. You're not going to have any trouble. But I do want you to know that there are some six sacks behind the seats. And don't be embarrassed if you had to use one. The only embarrassing thing would be not to use one. <laughs> but if they know they're there, it actually gives them a degree of comfort. Oh, well, I'll be, I can handle this, but it's there. You know, there's not that, oh, God, what am I going to do? But the other uh, aspect of that is, in that conversation, I'll say, I'm just letting you know that for informational purposes. You're not going to need it. But uh, what I would like to know is, if you get warm, I would like to know. Because I've found that if we can keep the cockpit cool, everybody's comfortable. So if you get warm, please tell me. Make sure the vents are on. If they're a little chilly, that's okay. If you live in Phoenix like I do, there are days that the cockpit's going to be warm no matter what you do. But I've been known when they were really uncomfortable, you could, they said, man, I'm really warm right now, to explain, you know what? I hope you're not uncomfortable with this, but we're going to open the window. I do sit on my charts before I open the window. <laughs> I've lost a few that way. But uh, I have opened the windows in, this, in the 172 before, slowed the airplane down. If they're uncomfortable enough that they might get sick, generally, they're not alarmed by opening the windows. But I have found that if they just tell me when they're getting warm, I can head off a lot of stuff at the pass. I'm going to drop in here with a little additional information for addressing passenger discomfort if it occurs. These days in warm weather, 
we always carry water bottles, which we have partially frozen and then added water. This turns out to be really useful. If the passengers start getting warm, they can sip the ice water out of there. They can also place the cold bottle against their neck or their forehead, and it gives a quick relief to cool them down and relax. Another useful thing for many people, if they start getting nauseous or if they're worried about getting nauseous, ginger chews are widely accepted as being helpful for that. You would have them take the ginger chews ahead of time if they think they might be sick or you think they might get sick. Otherwise, they can take it in flight about every 20 minutes. And then finally, if you have someone with motion sickness problems, Dramamine tablets or scopolamine patches are medications for addressing that. The scopolamine patches, according to my wife, the pharmacist, will make the passengers less drowsy. However, that one requires a prescription. Dramamine does not. Another thing is, on first flights that I have found is really valuable is to explain what the takeoff process is going to be. And we're going to take off. We're going to turn right. Oh, gee, you know, because otherwise that right turn scares the heck out of them. <laughs> and I also like to have the fun. And, you know, we've done all this flight planning before we go. It's a lot of fun to tell them what time you're going to land you know, to predict. Whenever you predict anything, that's something that's almost magical to them. The same thing's true with turbulence. We've all been there, right? You're riding along. There's a hill up there. There's a breeze today. What's going to happen at the hill? Turbulence. Uh, it's afternoon. There's some puffy little white clouds. What's, the, what's going to happen? Turbulence. Well, if the passengers know ahead of time that there's going to be a few bumps up here, they're much less, you know, it's not the hand of God shaking the airplane trying to get them out. <laughs> it's, it's something you can predict. And I'll tell them this. I'll say, you know, it's kind of fun as a pilot. I can see this almost like bumps in a gravel road up ahead. And you see those ridges up there? Well, the air is flowing over those ridges because there's a little bit of a wind today. And uh, just like water flowing over rocks in a brook, you know, the air is going to go up and down around those ridges. And we're going to go on the right side of that. We're going to have a few bumps for 10 minutes. And they're all like, wow, let's see if he's right. And, of course, that'll be the day there's no turbulence. But if there is any, they appreciate that tremendously. One, well, wow, you know, this guy's a real professional. They don't know I forgot my current charts. And, you know, I've got made all kinds of mistakes they don't know about. But makes me look like a professional, and it gives them advance warning of what's going to happen. You know, years ago when I was in college, I was in a psychology experiment where they paid 20 bucks. And, uh, of course, you never know what the real reason for these experiments are. But what we had to do was stick our hand and arm into a bucket of ice water and see how long we could keep it there. So I don't remember anymore how long it was in there, but 30 seconds or whatever, I got real cold and I took it out. And they said, okay, now we're going to tell you all the sensations you're going to experience with your arm and then have you do it again and see how long you can keep it in there. And they explained, you know, first you'll feel cold, then you'll feel tingling, then you'll feel numbness. Um, I don't remember if they described any symptoms of actually having a limb fall off, but I put my arm in there and I kept it in there for a couple of minutes. It made a huge difference. It was almost a game. you know. I knew what was going to happen and I wasn't alarmed by it. 
And I've, I've always remembered that. Of course, the experiment was probably about something entirely different. But I learned something from it, which was if people know ahead of time what to expect, they're usually comfortable. That's the single most important factor in taking people flying for the first time. Okay, so let's talk about this warning lights business. Whenever I put anybody new in the airplane, I get them comfortable there and I'm giving this briefing and I tell the six-act part real quickly, but I do tell them that. I'll say, you know, just so you're not alarmed, I want to mention that there, you know, there are some flashing lights in here. What's one that's always flashing in every airplane these days? Transponder, GPS. Are those scary situations when you see your transponder light flashing? No, but the person in the back seat, my God, there's a flashing yellow light up there. And I have a 182. There's not one light in that airplane that means anything bad's going to happen. I mean, if, and I tell them that. I'll say, you know, we've got some flashing lights up here, and they're all routine things. The best one, anyone have a North Star Loran? You know, Loran, of course, a, a, an older type of uh, direct navigational device. It's got a red light that says warning. And it flashes to tell you you have degraded accuracy on your Loran. And I mean, nothing like a red flashing warning light to get people's attention. So with that in mind, let me share with you an email I got one time. Quote, while flying my Piper Warrior the other day, I came across an unfamiliar event. At about 4,200 feet, temperature about 70 degrees, 1.3 hours into the flight, fuel and oil in the green, straight and level flight, a horn started beeping. Upon checking the instruments and panel, I discovered the O-light flashing in succession with the horn beeps. I went through the restart checks and began to descend, and the beeping stopped. This O-light is on the radio panel, second in the series of A, O, and M. Please tell me what this is, what caused it, and what to do to prevent and or react to this situation. Okay, those of you who are not yet private pilots, do any of you know what that is? Somebody in here does know what it is. If you know what that is, tell us. Right, it's the marker beacon. Now, those of you who aren't familiar, instrument flying, we use it some additional radios that, that you have not yet experienced. You may have seen like 172s and some of the models that have a full instrument stack. There'll be three little lights there, a blue one, a white one, and a yellow one. And the markers are fixed position uh, stations. You fly over and makes that light flash. It tells you where you are in an instrument approach. Now, you see, if, if you've been flying a VFR airplane and you get into this other airplane, you would have no way of knowing, would you? Now, let's look back at this pilot. What do you think about this pilot? Is this someone you'd like to fly with? You're saying no. Why not? Okay. Yeah. So... There is a problem there, right? But at the same time, this person, 4,700 feet, temperature 70 degrees, 1.3 hours into the flight, fuel and oil in the green, straight and level, a horn started beeping. If this person knows what's going on, I think it's someone we'd like to be riding with. Do you agree? If they knew. In other words, this is a very thorough individual. Went down, did the restart checks and everything, all because of this flashing radio light. But the point is that if you're going to give people rides... The, uh, I, I haven't told you the last part of this. I wrote this person back, who I don't even know their name, you know how this email stuff is, wrote him back and said, you know, well, explain what it was. And uh, it turned out there was a companion on this flight who was absolutely 
mortified by the experience. And in reading between the lines, that person may well never fly again because this pilot made that error. And so we got to know what's in the airplane, and we also need to tell people ahead of time because they may not ask, they may not say anything. And some of these airplanes, you cannot turn off those lights or the, even the horn on the audio panel. So it may start beeping, and it just scares people to death. So these minor things are, are you know, something we have to address if we're going to give people a satisfactory flight that they're going to enjoy. Now, is there anyone in here who has the problem with a really, a truly fearful spouse or a relative who will not go? Okay, that's a tough situation. And I'd like to make a couple suggestions that may or may not help. One thing that I found is helpful is uh, sometimes they will consent to go if there is another more experienced pilot along. And although any of us is capable of conducting the flight safely, I found that one trick that uh, some of my former students I've had them do is to invite a flight instructor. Like, I'll say to them, well, I'll go along with you, but it's not going to be a lesson. I'll bring my wife and let's the four of us fly somewhere. A lot of times the spouse will consent to go because, oh, my instructor is going to be along and so on. Now, of course, the two of us will agree ahead of time. This is, you see, this is not the time for me as an instructor to give duel to this person because then that's going to make them look bad. And that's not our objective. So we'll agree ahead of time. Look, I want you to know if you need anything or want any advice, I'm here. But uh, I might point at something if I'm concerned about something. But we're, we're going to make a deal that I'm not going to say anything to detract from your command of the airplane. You see, now the person's gone along and seen you in action and you've made your landing and the trip went safely. It's a way to get them in. Uh, it, and hopefully start building their confidence. So that's one method I've used with the really tough ones. Another thing is that if you can find a good pinch hitter course, is there anyone who's not familiar with the term? Pinch hitter course is for flying companions. AOPA has one. Pinch hitter course is, of course, is designed for passengers to go and learn about flying. And I especially like the ones where they use a flight simulator. Like in Phoenix, the 99s, the Women Pilots Association, they give a terrific pinch hitter course where they go in and fly the flight simulator. So the passenger doesn't have to go up in an airplane, but does get to handle the controls and see how everything works and fly the plane. And as they become more familiar with what's going on, it reduces the stress tremendously. And in fact, my friends Jeff and Susan, and Jeff's been flying now for probably at least 12 years, Susan's going to go take this class because she's hoping it'll give her more confidence to fly with her husband. And I think it will. And she'll be, in this particular case, it's important that she be with a group of women. And that's one reason why for her, I've got her going to the 99s because she needs to see that women, I mean, we know that uh, these things shouldn't be true, but this is a person who needs to see that women can be professionals at flying. So she feels confident she can handle what comes along. Now came a comment from an audience member who had gained confidence by riding along on a lesson with her husband and his instructor. That's neat. I admire you for that. This is probably one of the greatest regrets of my life, but without getting into any personal problems. <laughs> right after I got my flight instructor certificate, 
the first two people I offered to, to get involved, one was my wife, and I did give her lessons and took her through solo, though I'll never forget the time I was teaching her stalls. I said, we've all, all of you flying can recognize this, right? Pull back, pull back, pull back, right? Because students always hesitant on pulling back. Pull back on the wheel just a little bit more, a little bit more. Come on, Gene, you're doing great. Pull back. No. <laughs> The second time I asked, she not only said no, but she said, you fly and we're going home now. But she did go on and earn her rating, but uh, not her, she got her glider rating. But uh, to this day, I still give her dual occasionally, but I would never try and teach my wife again. If she wanted additional ratings, we'd go to someone else. There's a lot of good reasons for that. But the other person I called was my brother, Alan, who's two years younger than me. And Alan had flown for years. And then he was in medical school and hadn't flown at all. So I called him up, Alan, you know, I got my flight instructor certificate and come on down here to where we're living and I'll, I'll give you a flight review and you can get current again. He's like, wow, that'd be great. He came down with his girlfriend and uh, we got to the plane. We're looking it over and, and uh, his girlfriend's name was Leslie. And I, I said, uh, well, Leslie, um, are you a pilot? She said, no, I've never been up in a small plane. I said, well, tell you what, why don't you hang out in the lounge and have a Coke? And then Alan and I will go up and we get back. He'll take you flying. Oh no, she wanted to go. And then of course my brother, what? Leslie wants to go. She's not scared of roller coasters. She has to go. So I said, well, okay, but you know, we're going to do some maneuvers. No, no, everything was cool. They wanted to do it. So we took off. We went out to the practice area and I kept checking on her. I mean, she looked fine. She'd smile and wave. We did, did some stalls and some steep turns. Everything was fine. We get back to the airport and did a couple touch and goes, I looked back at her, and she was green. She was as green as your blouse. I mean, she was green. Was like, oh, my God. So we landed the plane, and she ran into the bathroom, and afterwards everything was fine and was forgotten. Well, they ultimately got married. They've been married for, I don't know, 16, 17 years now. Leslie has never been up in a light airplane again. And uh, I don't know for sure that it was that flight, but... It hurts me every time we, like I flew Jean across the Grand Canyon to St. George to go to tennis camp and Leslie met her there and Leslie took a commercial flight to Las Vegas and rode two hours in the van rather than go with us. I just tell that story because I, I don't want you guys to ever have those regrets and I hope none of you do. But to have someone in my own family that I might have turned off to flying, that is something that has always bothered me. And so going along on lessons, I think you've got to be very careful that you've got a dialogue going which I suspect you two must, where it was agreed that you were going to say, if, if you got uncomfortable, that lesson was going to terminate, because otherwise it would all be over. So I'm not saying it's a bad idea to go. I'm just saying be careful if you try that approach. Okay. I want to tell you a quick story about somebody's first flight that I think you'll enjoy. a buddy of mine earned his private pilot certificate and within a couple days of getting the certificate some friends approached him who had never been up in a small plane about the perfect trip for him to take them on and so what I'd like to do is quickly tell you this story about Joe's first flight with passengers and I need your help pardon the game show environment here but I'd like to hear a buzzer when you hear anything that alarms you about this flight okay you know, okay so what this trip was about, Joe's in the Phoenix area, and they're going to fly from Deer Valley Airport. Uh, his friends wanted to attend a family reunion in Parowan, Utah, which is up near Cedar City. 
Why? <laughs> it's far away. It's hundreds of miles away. Okay. What do you know about the terrain? Mountainous terrain. High altitude, high elevation. You fly over the Grand Canyon, which is exciting but thought-provoking. Okay. Did I mention yet that this was in July? <laughs> but, you know, what a great thing. We all know as pilots, whenever our passengers have a place they really want to go and we can take them there, there's nothing like a mission to make the juices flow. I mean, that's exciting stuff. So Joe's like, well, sure, I'd love to take you to this family reunion. So he went out to the airport and he, he arranged to rent a Piper Archer, which, of course, is a, a Cherokee with 180 horsepower and reasonably capable airplane for mountains. But there were going to be four of them on this long flight, several hundred miles. So they got the whole thing set up. Now, Joe's a real thorough guy. He called me up about this trip, and we talked about it a little bit. And you know, I said, well, what's the field elevation up there? Well, Parowan was at uh, like 6,200 feet. So it's a high field elevation in the summertime. So that's cause for concern. We discussed the fact, you know, that he'd have to do some fuel planning because he couldn't take off with full fuel from there. Well, Joe did a real thorough flight plan for this trip, and he, he figured out that he could take off from Deer Valley, and he decided to land at Cedar City which is only 20 miles away, it's 500 feet lower, it has clear approaches and longer runways. A good decision. Plus, there's a VOR on the field. And this is before GPS, so it's been a couple of years. So he did some you know, pretty good planning, I thought, on this trip, and he determined that they could carry pretty much full fuel going, but he had picked St. George, Utah as a fuel stop just in case, and then he would go up there and uh, when they got ready to depart, they would depart with like half tanks. He had done weight and balances and everything. And then they would land at St. George or at Grand Canyon Airport or somewhere and refuel on the way back so that they would be light for this takeoff in the summertime from this high elevation airport. Sound like pretty good planning? So they got ready to go. And Joe's thinking, well, I don't want to make them get up real early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so he arranged to meet them at 10 o'clock at the airport and is there anyone here who has not flown in the mountainous desert area in the summertime mid-afternoon well if you want to know what it's like in James Bond martini shaker <laughs> it, it is those of us who live in that area we simply do not fly between about 11 in the morning and five o'clock in the afternoon in the summer because it's it's extremely hot and the turbulence, you're at maneuvering speed the whole time and it's horrible. It's just absolutely horrible. And it can be dangerous. Uh, the performance is so poor of the airplane. They show up at 10 o'clock and nobody had told Joe that the Archer was down for maintenance. The only other airplane available was a Warrior. <laughs> right? So same basic airplane, but it's a hundred, I think it was a hundred and sixty horsepower model, so we got less power to deal with this tough situation. So now he's going to be more marginal on fuel. Of course, he was in a panic. And, and these people are eager to get to their destination. That's always a warning sign anyway. So Joe did new weight and balance and recalculated his whole flight plan and everything and decided that they could safely go, but they were just going to have to really be careful about fuel. They took off about noon. So they're flying northwest, and I guess the ride was pretty smooth across uh, over Prescott and up that way. They, they crossed the Grand Canyon, and uh, everyone enjoyed that. But they got up northwest to 
Grand Canyon and it started getting bumpy. And, and you know, there, there's nothing up there. This is trackless terrain north of the Grand Canyon, nothing. So Joe suddenly realized that he wasn't sure where he was. So what do you think he did? He decided to look around. He started turning. He turned one way and started flying. He's looking for a landmark. He recognized. How's that logic? Is it good or bad? Why is it bad? Exactly. You become totally disoriented. And, you know, for non-pilots, we've all been there, right? You got a passenger there in the back seat. The passenger says, Jill, what's that town? Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know what that town is. Right? You're digging for the charts, trying to figure it out. You have no idea. And so then, of course, the passenger thinks, my God, Jill is lost. You know, she's going to kill us all. We're in big trouble. But the, the parallel I like to give them is it's like driving on the interstate in a way. I mean, between exits, you really don't know where you are. If you got off between exits in open country, you would very definitely be lost. But as long as you remain on the interstate, you're between known points, you're fine. And really, flying between checkpoints is like that. And you never want to start deviating on a course if you're lost, because how far off course are you likely to be? You know, you start watching for landmarks, but generally you don't want to deviate. Well, Joe started turning wider and wider loops. Later he told me that he figured out that they had actually been flying over St. George at least half this time, and he didn't see the airport directly below him. <laughs> but this, this he figured out later. But they're making these turns back and forth looking. Now, in the meantime, it's getting really turbulent. All three passengers were vomiting into the six sacks. And it was a horrible situation. Finally, Joe finds a road, he follows the road, gets to St. George, and he lands, and he's taxiing in, and out runs the lineman. And he's all, oh, well, you know, this is service. So the guy came running out, and he's waving and so on, and, and Joe opened up the little, you know, storm window on that Cherokee. Before he even shut the engine down, the guy says, uh, the FAA is looking for you. Of course, his flight plan called for him to have landed long before, and he hadn't called it. So imagine what the passengers are thinking through this whole thing, Right. So he went inside. They were looking over three-state region because he had overstayed his flight plan, and he called in. Everything was cool. He got oriented, and he loaded up his passengers, and they flew the remaining probably only 35 minutes to Cedar City from there. They went to the reunion, and I said to Joe, you know, do you think these people are ever going to fly with you again? And he said, well, I don't think they would have except for one thing. And I said, what's that? He said, have you ever tried to get from Cedar City, Utah to Phoenix? <laughs> There was no other way for them to come home <laughs> at all. <laughs> so on the flight home, Joe did everything right, and it, they went early in the morning. It was nice and cool, and he said it might be a couple months before they began to go, but he thought they would go again. But I think, you know, in looking at that, he actually flew a safe trip, right? He had done the planning. Their safety really was never at risk in this flight. So as a new pilot, I can admire how he handled a lot of errors there. But uh, in terms of exposing our passengers to this, we don't want to ever put ourselves in that situation too ambitious of a trip for a first flight with people who know nothing about flying. Would you agree?
Before we continue, I just want to make clear that based on the way I told the story when I gave the talk, it may not be obvious that Joe was invited along with his friends to the reunion. That's important in separating private pilot activities from commercial pilot activities. So I'm not going to get into the details of that now, but I would suggest that you take a look at Advisory Circular 61-142, which you can access online for guidance. Now, let's get on with the story. I want to close with one last story here. A couple of years ago, my wife and I had a wonderful flight up to Seattle from Phoenix. We worked our way up there and visited friends along the way. And we stayed with a, a nice couple up there named the Darrows. Uh, Don was an old friend of my dad's. He's a retired American captain. And his wife, Kitty, was chairman of a scientific instrument company up in the Denver area. And uh, Kitty's a very interesting person. Kitty, uh, not only is licensed as a pilot, she took lessons from Bill Kirshner in Iowa when she was younger. And, of course, he's a, a famous aviation educator. And ultimately, with this company, they bought a citation. She became typerated in it. Now, Kitty is about this tall, and she fits the, the stereotype grandmother. She's got white hair and a charming smile, and I've never had any cookies she's made, but they have to be great. I mean, she looks like a grandmother. But she's, you know, single pilot rated in this citation, and she flew around on business. So the first fun part of this, uh, she was telling us about how enjoyable it was to fly this citation land at the airport, taxi in, and step out. And the lineman would be there. And she said, the lineman would just stand there and wait. And she said, I would just stand there and wait. What was he waiting for? Waiting for the pilot. Because she just loved to wait until he'd finally say, well, is the pilot going to come out? And she'd say, I'm the pilot. <laughs> so I enjoyed that. But, you know, speaking of carrying passengers, she told me a wonderful story that I think captures how passengers, their lack of knowledge of things sometimes can be an issue. She told me a story that happened when she was eight or nine years old, back in the 30s. Her dad owned an airplane called an Alexander Eagle Rock. There's one hung in the Colorado Springs Terminal. They were made in Colorado Springs. It's a, very much like the Waco out front, a twin, uh, open cockpit biplane. So you get this wonderful picture of dad and his daughter in the helmets, you know, flying across beautiful countryside in this biplane, and, and they had many adventures together. But she said, we were flying one day, and we had an engine failure. She said, my dad immediately picked out a field, and we circled down. We landed safely in this field. And she said, I thought it was all very exciting. So she said, we went home that evening. And we had dinner, and not much was said about this. And then my parents sent me to bed. So she said, I was on my way upstairs. I just got to the top of the stairs, and I heard Dad telling Mom about this incident this day. And she said, I was very upset because my dad was a very honorable type of guy, and I'd never heard him tell a lie in my life. I'd never heard him tell a lie. And she said, I heard him tell my mom an untruth. And it, it bothered me for years afterwards. So my wife and I are listening. Well, what, what was it? She said, well, he told my mom about the engine failure and circling down and explained the landing. And he said to my mother, you know, that's as close to a cemetery as I ever care to land. And she said, I was there. There were no gravestones anywhere near that place. <laughs> Took her years to figure it out. But, you know, 
I think we have to look at our passengers that way. Folks, I want to thank you for coming. I want to make just a couple other suggestions here. One, anyone who's an AOPA member, you know, if you meet someone who's interested in learning to fly, you can call the 800 number and you can order a free flight training subscription and flight training membership. And they will get six months of flight training magazine and no charge to anyone plus access to the website and everything else. Please use that. Please take as many people flying as you possibly can because it's it's a special gift we have and we owe it to ourselves if we want to see the Cirrus come down another 20,000 so we can buy one or 200,000. <laughs> we need to keep people involved in flying and frankly, if you look around us at these events, you see there are not many young people here. We're not bringing them very successfully into general aviation. There's never been a more important time to do that. So thank you all for coming and joining me for this. Thanks for riding along on today's Flying Carpet Adventure. Please help me continue this podcast by sharing your favorite Flying Carpet episodes on social media, posting reviews on your favorite podcast directories, and donating via my Greg Brown Flying Carpet website. Thanks in advance for your support. You can find photos from most episodes at my website, gregbrownflyingcarpet.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please check out my book of aviation adventure stories, Flying Carpet, The Soul of an Airplane, for which I was named Barnes & Noble Arizona Author of the Month. Learn about that and my other aviation books at gregbrownflyingcarpet.com. Also at gregbrownflyingcarpet.com, you'll find my views from the flying carpet aerial photography, available in fine art metal prints and pilot achievement plaques. Oh, and I'd appreciate hearing your feedback in my Flying Carpet Podcast Facebook group. Follow my social media sites, most of which can be found by searching Greg Brown Flying Carpet. And consider joining my student pilot pep talk group on Facebook. Thanks again for joining me on today's Flying Carpet Cockpit Adventure. Music by Hannes Brown. See you next time.